Yesterday was a, a, a banner day for me and for another elder in our church, Chris Huskin. Uh, we uh, entered what is known as the Gladiator Run at the Rose Bowl, uh, believe it or not, at 53, Chris at 49. Uh, we completed this five-kilometer race that takes you up and over 20 obstacles in and through mud. Uh, I have other very macho-looking pictures of me climbing rope and doing all kinds of things. Um, I finished, and I'm not in too much pain, which is like a real answer to prayer. And, uh, and it was quite a jolt of testosterone for a guy. I was very thankful to, to experience that. But for the record, I'll have you know that neither Chris or I are the most fit elders in our church. John Crabb actually finished a half Ironman triathlon this summer, which is really humbling when I look at it like that. There's this, there's this moment. See, Chris and I were part of a team of people at the Anytime Fitness Center, and there's this moment right at the beginning of this rock and race, and perhaps you've seen scenes like this before if you've ever watched the Boston Marathon, but... They cram you into this gateway. It's, you feel a lot like an animal in a pen. And, 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 you, and they let you off in flights, so you're moving along at a, at a fairly slow pace. So we were in line a half hour, 45 minutes before we actually launched. And, and the groups that are at the beginning, um, they are you know, told, go. And you say, how do you know that? Well, it's particularly challenging because music is blaring all over the place. I mean, you're not only up near the start line, but over here in the festival area, it's just noise, 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 and ACDC, and brr, loud, and everything is just crazy. And, and so what you start to recognize, though, is that there is one, like, head DJ starter guy up front on a microphone talking with the gang and getting everybody going, and then he's got this annoying crowd horn and so you begin to recognize it. He says, you guys ready to go? You know, and then the next thing you know, everybody's like, ah, here we go. And so you, you see this several times over, and then you realize, okay, he's the voice. He's the one I'm supposed to follow. All right? I, if other people yell, start, go, you don't go. You go when the guy blows the horn and does his DJ thing. And, and so... I, as I was thinking about this yesterday, because I, I actually have been thinking about my sermon this week, um, and one of the things that's common in John's language, and particularly in John 10, is this concept of we being God's sheep, and he uses metaphors like the pen. And, and I thought, this is a lot like what our text today is talking about, which is there is a moment when you know you're a child of God, and that is when you begin to recognize the voice of the shepherd. Jesus talks about this in our passage today. And uh, after taking a week off to hear from my mentor, Mike Kanjan, we are now jumping back into our series in the Gospel of John. The first part of this sermon is going to be today about the context in which this is taking place. And this will be a little bit longer discourse for me than normal with regards to wanting to make sure I set the stage right. The second part of this will, though, be application. In many ways, it's a, it's a good thing that we had a week off between the first part of John 10 and the second part of John 10 because, in reality, these two parts of John 10 are months apart in their happening. You see, Jesus was doing and speaking at one particular festival of gathering about 
sheep and about following him. And then now we're talking about another experience. And it says here in John 10, at the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So you see that there's this transition moment. And this is why, in part, John goes out of his way to connect Jesus to this particular festival. Um, One reason is, in the historical accounts of the gospel, sometimes we would often think that because one verse follows another, as 21 follows 20 in John 10, that these must have happened immediately after. And, And that's not the case. So he is wanting us to see some time, has ha- so some time has elapsed between these two discourses. But in some ways, John is wanting us to see that Jesus' language is very similar and that he's talking about sheep and pens and voices. And, and so the, it is intentionally tied together in this text. It is along those lines that most scholars think the primary purpose of bringing up the festival is that we would deepen our understanding of this particular incident, this sharp conflict between the Jews and Jesus. They had a number of them, and you wonder, why so redundant about these conflicts? Because in each context, there were further reasons why people were, if you will, frustrated with who Jesus was. Uh, The Feast of Dedication, we know it by the name Hanukkah. Uh, it happens for Jews in our country and around the world in the month of December. And it was first instituted by Judas Maccabees in the rededication of the temple uh, after in 164 a, a pagan by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes had run over Jerusalem and then actually defiled the temple. And so Maccabees, Maccabees' family came to the aid of the Israelites and God used them to restore Jerusalem and then they rededicated the temple and then they had this experience, a miracle experience with regards to oil as the tradition goes. But we'll, we'll pass over all that today to just say that this annual celebration was not all that long ago in the moment that Jesus was encountering the Jews. It was like a century and a half before. So you think about how fresh maybe our memories of the American Revolution might be if you're an American, all right? Or uh, for those of us who lived during 9-11 and, you know, how fresh, even though that was hard to believe, 17 years ago next month. You think time just goes by, but it's still sort of fresh in your memory. And in many ways, this is the case with the Hanukkah in this season of life for the Jews. It, it wasn't that long ago that they had to have this, they, re- they instituted this celebration, this festival to say, we're going to remember how God delivered us and worked this out in our lives. And it was in the context of this Jesus walking around the temple on Hanukkah that they approached him and said, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. You see, they were hoping that Jesus really, if he was the Messiah, could save them from the tyranny of the Romans in the same way that they had been preserved a century and a half before. But they were frustrated. It's evidenced by their demand to know, 
And then you can imagine their ongoing realization that Jesus wasn't who they'd hoped for in a Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Messiah because they had all sorts of notions about what that Messiah was going to be. And I really think this could be at the heart of much frustration with Jesus, at least the Jesus of the New Testament. I think Christians can testify to the fact that we often will say, um, we'll, or come into an experience where Jesus is pressing us or testing us or growing us or helping us experiencing something in life that's painful, and we'll think, you know, your plan for my life isn't really my plan for my life, or it's not going the way I wanted it to go, or at the pace with which I thought I would like this all to develop. And, and we then in those moments realize perhaps it's our affluence, perhaps it's Western Christianity, perhaps it's the influence of televangelism, but we've gotten in this place where we think God's here to make us better, that God's here to make our lives, uh, you know, their best life now. I mean, we're supposed to right now be, this, God's here to serve us. And as a Christian, when you realize that is not the case, the Jesus of the New Testament loves us dearly, but he has a plan and we're fortunate to be a part of it. And life is about getting on his page for us and not him developing our life and helping us achieve our dreams. You also can sense this frustration about Jesus not being who we want him to be from the culture in general. In other words, when the Jesus of the New Testament comes sometimes head-to-head with our culture, people can't live with that. So they'll have to toss out and then redefine who Jesus is in some extra-biblical way because they don't want Jesus to be what the New Testament would say Jesus is. They have set in their mind, if, if there is a God, he's like this. He would allow this. He wouldn't restrict this. And when you come to the Jesus of the New Testament, it could be a source of frustration because you're like, hey, hold on a second. I had a preconceived idea about the Jesus I wanted, the Messiah I wanted, the Savior, the God I wanted, and you are not it. And so as his followers, what you can expect if you are a follower of the Jesus of the New Testament is that angst is going to get turned on you. Jesus said as much, so I would prepare your soul. Now to make matters worse in this context, to make it more tense, (laughs) they were already a little wound. And then Jesus says a couple of things to the Jews that, uh, well, that basically lead them to another arrest attempt. First, he tells them, listen, I told you before who I was, and you didn't listen. You don't know. You're not, you don't hear me. You're not my sheep. And then the second thing he tells them is, I'm God. I mean, this right now, these guys are already simmering, like with a little bit of frustration, and now it's like, whoa, and they just absolutely lose their mind. Verses 33, 30 through 33 of John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered him, It is not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is astounding. And if I can make a really average attempt at trying to put some of that in our context. I mean, why would this be so, why would this enrage them so much? Well, theologically speaking, they believed God was one 
And for them, that didn't mean one being three persons. It just meant God was one. The Lord, their God, was one. And so the notion that he and God were one and the same or that he was equal with God was super-duper offensive to them. Beyond that, though, it's, the, it's the, their perception that he thinks a lot of himself. So imagine this. Imagine that I, your friend Chuck, was an actor here in Los Angeles. And, you know, I just heard again that the highest paid actor in the world is George Clooney, who took home a couple hundred million dollars last year. And if I said to you, listen, George is a fine actor and a gorgeous hunk of man. George and I are really one and the same. You would go, something's really wrong with you. At least on the looks part of it. I mean, you can judge his acting ability independent of it, but he is certainly an attractive man. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And that's what they were like, what is wrong with you? Because, see, they didn't see him as God in the flesh. They recognized his blasphemy, and they tried to kill him. He violated their law. As we said last the last time we preached in John and, and uh, have said on a number of occasions as we've worked our way through this uh, gospel which proclaims with clarity from the first verse all the way through the end of it that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus needed to be the holy God in the flesh because only a perfect substitute would do. Only a holy being could be substituted for a group of unholy beings. And given that only God is holy, only God is by nature perfect, for Jesus to be a substitute for the sins of all who would ever believe, he would have to be God in the flesh. Only that way would his sacrifice be sufficient. The sheep of God, the followers of Jesus, they know this because we see them responding to his declaration of who he is with faith. At the very tail end of this section of Scripture in John 10, we see these verses, verses 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So you contrast that with being at the festival where hearts were hard, where souls were proud, where ears were closed and unable to hear the voice of the shepherd, and now you've got these others who, recognizing who Jesus is claiming to be, put their faith in him. Well, with the context of all of this clearly set and the purposes of the narratives included, inclusion in John's gospel evident, now we can actually get down to the practical analysis of what Jesus said and what that means and how that can encourage you and me. And to accomplish this, what I want to do is focus our attention on four verses at the heart of today's chunk of scriptures, and that would be verses 27 through 30. And in this section of John 10, You get to mine both rich theology and practical encouragement. I have just two real quick thoughts from actually the same couple of verses. 
John 10, verses 27 through 30, the first thought is this, his sheep know his voice and follow their shepherd's lead. Uh, Jesus says as much, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, I think it's exciting, interesting, when you think about the difference between Jesus gathering sheep and people gathering around Jesus. You see this in the text and it's significant that Jesus was walking through Solomon's colonnade and, and, and we don't know exactly what he was doing, but what happens is his critics manage to gather around him. What you see in the language of John 10 is Jesus being one that gathers lost sheep. So if you are lost and humble and broken, you can take great heart that your savior, your shepherd is coming to to gather you. Jesus doesn't gather critics. They gather around him. He, he doesn't need to gather them. They will find him because they are irritated by him and they're trying to dismiss him. How then would one know that they were actually a sheep of God? I mean, I think we've all asked that question before. How do I really know that I'm a child of God? And according to this, you not only know his voice, but you follow it. Now, that doesn't mean you actually do so perfectly. It just means that as a general direction in life, the course of your life is now being set by the following of Jesus. We, metaphorically speaking, if you think about the visual, when Jesus actually called disciples, they had to walk with him. And so there was a very literal sense of walking alongside of him, walking behind him, imitating him, letting him guide life. You see in the experience of the New Testament that his followers screwed up all the time in his presence. So following him doesn't mean you're not going to embarrass yourself from time to time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to do something stupid and fall on your face and Jesus is going to go, what you doing down there? You know, and help you up. It just means that the trajectory of a disciple is, I am with other disciples, we're following after Jesus. You see this in a variety of scriptures in the New Testament. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, if anyone come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In uh, Matthew 7, uh, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Um, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.21 wrote, uh, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And it was the Gospel of John writer, John, who in his first letter to the church wrote this in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. Quote, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The reason we follow him, according to John 10, is that we know his voice and he knows us. Presumably, there is relationship that exists there. And really, the joy of our pursuit of him is that he does know us. I mean, he knows everything about you. It's not that you're wonderfully, perfectly obedient to him. It's that he knows you. We know he's trustworthy. We know we have a unique 
relationship with him. Our willingness to follow Jesus on his path, albeit imperfectly, and as Mike Kanjan spoke last night and wrote about in his book, with much stumbling. Following Jesus is born of first knowing him and being known by him. We won't follow and really shouldn't follow anyone we don't trust. Would you marry somebody you can't trust? I hope not. So why would you be any less skeptical? Why would you use any less scrutiny with regards to who's going to guide your life? Uh, I have two particular gifts. One is a distinct and loud whistle. I, have, uh, I can put my fingers in my teeth, and, and I, sometimes I'll do it at a football game, and whole sections of people will turn around and hold their ears and go, you know, what's that about? Don't understand it. I won't do it here into the microphone and in our small chapel. I don't want to break the glass, you know, but I will if you hang around for the workday today, demonstrate it if you must. Um, the other thing that's probably more obvious is that I have a really loud voice, and uh, it has a resonance to it. Um, that got me into lots of trouble as a kid in school because I don't have an indoor voice capability. My family reminds me of this every now and again. If we're at a restaurant, they'll go, hey, talk softer. People across the room can hear you. Teachers did too. And there were things that I was saying that I didn't want them to hear. And so I spent some time in the principal's office as a result. These two gifts have come in handy though because I have two dogs at home. Both pit bull mixes, and they are a fun couple cats. I mean, they're really good guys, and they're really energetic. But they know the alpha voice of their master. It's true. I mean, when I bark, they actually respond. And my whistle is deadly. I mean, it's unique, and they know it. And they may come up and lick you, and they most certainly will if you come to the house. They're friendly guys. Uh, but they will not stop in their tracks after chasing a coyote or bear if you say stop. They will likely only do that if I yell their name very sharply and blow my whistle. Now, before you get carried away and think, is metaphorically he calling us dogs? <laughs> I just want you to... Be careful not to get your metaphorical fur up on your back. I am likening our relationship to God to that of a dog and his caretaker in the same way Jesus likened us to being the sheep in God's pasture. And what is strikingly similar about us and God is, is that we don't often understand exactly what God's doing, but we can know that he's guiding and speaking. We know his voice. We're learning his voice. My dogs don't speak English, but they've managed to pick up on intonation. They've managed to pick up on some words like stop. Um, they've managed to no, no is a big one in our family, and they clearly understand that one. I'm saying all this that they've learned and are learning how to recognize the voice of the people who are there to care for them and love them, and they're part of our family. The same way as Christians, it, maybe you're not like me, but maybe you're a lot more like me than you think. Uh, there are days where I go, God, I, I just feel like I'd like to hear from you a little more clearly than I do. 
I'd like to understand and comprehend this gospel better than I seem to. I've been at it for three and a half decades, and I'm still sometimes going, huh? You know, like, how does this work? God, speak to me. I don't hear you very well. He says his sheep will hear his voice. One way you can know you're God's child is how attentive or responsive you are to his voice. His sheep know his voice. The scriptures say the general trajectory of their life is to follow the shepherd's lead. Second piece of this verse that I find really helpful and encouraging is that his sheep know they're eternally secure in the shepherd's hand. We know his voice, we follow his lead, but we know we're eternally secure with this caring shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So you see Jesus saying, I've got a hand, you're not going to get snatched out of that. The Father's got a hand, you're not going to snatch out of that. You're not in two hands, you're in one hand. I and the Father are one. This was grounds for blasphemy. It drove the Jews crazy. I cannot believe this guy thinks he's one with the Father. That's insanity. But it's comforting to us to know that this shepherd For those who can hear his voice can rest secure that he who is holding you in place securely is no one less than God Almighty. Knowing that you are secure in your salvation, that you cannot lose your relationship with God, is the key to both enjoying being a Christian and growing in your love for God. You cannot, I cannot genuinely love God unless we are 100% secure that we will not lose our relationship with God, lose our salvation. Let me explain why. Because if your motive for doing good works is to earn enough brownie points with God so he either gives you salvation or doesn't take it from you or in some way is obligated to bless you in some way, then now your motivation for serving God is not about pleasing him or honoring him or loving him. It's very self-serving. It's transactional. It's in your mind or my mind at that point something that essentially entitles you to something. God, I did this, you're going to do this, right? I raised my kids the right way, they're going to follow you. A plus B equals C. Give me. And if you are in that mindset, you are actually violating one of the things Jesus said, which is that when you do something for someone, you don't expect anything in return. That's the definition of love. I'm doing it for you. Well, how do you love God if you're constantly working Him? Like, i got to do this to keep my salvation. i got to do this to earn my salvation. What did we even say in today's confession, today's catechism? If you look to your bulletin, you'll see it repeated. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? No, they should not. 
as everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. To seek salvation through good works is a denial that Christ is the only Redeemer and Savior. That includes your good works. That includes your system of religion that makes you think you are now entitled to be at peace with God. He doesn't want you to rest your salvation on your performance because your performance stinks. And you will never find peace there unless you're delusional and think you're George Clooney on the moral world. He's saying, I want you to rest in peace. And that means putting your faith in what Christ has done. It means resting in what Christ has done for you, resting in his imputed righteousness given to you, a righteousness credited to you. When a person is secure that they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of God's hand, they are now free to love God through their obedience for the sake of loving him and not as a means to their own end. You think I'm making up this stuff about your, the eternal security of your soul. Write these, jot these verses down. John 6, 37 through 39. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Paul said in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul wrote, I'm sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John repeats himself again in his letter, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The starting point for our mission as a church, which is to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture, is the revival of Believers, And I believe that one of the most important keys to a person returning to fellowship with Jesus and actually growing in their desire to love and please Him is a clear understanding of how wonderfully secure they are if they're generally, genuinely connected to their Father. And if you've not been in church in a while, and perhaps you've just been mentally and emotionally away from the Father and you've gotten into this mental state where you think you have to do good works to balance the scales of good and bad behavior, where really you've developed this whole alternative world where God only likes you if you're perfect in your obedience. You, you, your, your understanding of your own salvation might be that you, you could lose it at some point. If that's the way you're thinking, you're eventually going to quit. You're going to come to terms with the reality that you don't have the ability to win that war. That even as a follower of Jesus, the scriptures describe the apostles as making huge errors in the presence of Jesus. That Christians are called to confess their sins to one another. We have recordings in the book of Acts of the apostle Peter 
filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, great preacher and evangelist, being a racist to the Galatian Gentiles. You screw up as a Christian. God knew that. That's why he sent Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean being perfect. It means following him, and when you blow it, confess what you did and get up and follow again. Jesus is saying that doesn't, your disobedience hasn't played a role in your salvation to begin with. It was a gift. He gives you salvation, it says in John 10. And he knows us. He's saying to you and to me, you will be full of joy when you are secure in your knowledge that you can never be snatched out of his hand. The fuel for loving God is the loving assurance that his sheep know they're secure with the shepherd. Today as we do communion, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I, I would invite you to joy. The joy of your salvation is not how well you did this week obeying or how poorly you did disobeying the Lord. The joy of your salvation is what He has done for you. It is found in His faithfulness to you. It is found in ongoing forgiveness for when you fall on your face, which happens so frequently. All these things are one more testimony of the grace of God to you and to me. And our hope today is that as we take the Lord's Supper, you would enter into His presence with thanksgiving because of what He's done. And if that means along the way you have to say, you know, Lord, I'm here in Your presence and it's time for me to confess some things, then do so. That's part of what Scripture says we're supposed to do in communion is come to the table to remember He already knows. Just bring it to Him. As you're close to him, as you are known by him, as you learn to know him, you will want to love him more. So let's go before the Father today.